Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. Today, from London, I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. In Malawi, the memories of beatings and shootings from three years ago are still fresh. The democracy that bloomed from that violent transition is held up as a regional success story. Remaking Malawi's economy, though, is proving harder still. And Ukraine's forces have won lots of Russian military kit in the course of the invasion. Much of it isn't of great interest, but one particular tank will prove a tremendous prize in the current conflict and during any future Russian adventurism. First up, though. For months, polls in Brazil had been predicting an end to the presidency of Jair Bolsonaro. Last night, almost 120 million votes were counted across the country, one of the largest democracies on earth, in the first round of the presidential elections. Polls had predicted a double-digit lead for the leftist challenger and former leader Luis Inácio Lula da Silva, widely known as Lula. Supporters gathered ready to celebrate on the streets. For a while, as votes were tallied, Mr. Bolsonaro was ahead. Then came the moment that Lula took the lead. With nearly all of the votes in, Lula clearly has more of them, but he failed to achieve the 50% needed to avoid a runoff vote on October 30th. I always thought that we would win the elections, Lula said, and we will. This is just overtime. Mr. Bolsonaro, meanwhile, has attacked the pollsters who predicted a far worse result for him, saying, we overcame that lie. It all means another fraught month of campaigning for the both of them. In the lead-up to the vote yesterday, Lula's supporters were daring to hope that Lula might even pull off a first-round win. Sarah Maslin is our Brazil correspondent. He was way ahead in the polls, leading by 10% or more. But when the results started to come in, the story looked quite different. Lula ended up getting 48%, while Jair Bolsonaro got 43%, which is a much tighter runoff than anyone expected. And why do you suppose the polls were so far off? Well, it looks like what's happening in Brazil is similar to what has happened in the U.S. Bolsonaro clearly benefited from something of a hidden vote. 
His supporters are often mistrustful of government, and it's possible they don't trust pollsters either. Or perhaps the polling methods in Brazil, most of which are still in-person massive polls that do a really good job of getting poor people's votes, might not have done such a good job of getting wealthier people's votes. And those are the people who tend to vote for Bolsonaro. So what do the counts look like on the ground? What was the geographic split here? So if you look at the map of Brazil, it's split across pretty traditional lines with Lula taking the northeast and some of the southeast and Bolsonaro taking the north and the agricultural center west and the south of Brazil. But that sort of hides some unexpected surprises. Bolsonaro outpolled Lula in Sao Paulo, the most populous state and a really key one in all of the races that were happening yesterday. Also, a lot of Bolsonaro's allies were elected to Congress, and some of them weren't expected to win, which shows that Bolsonarismo is much stronger than people previously figured. And what does that tell you then about how the second round of this will now go? Well, it gives Bolsonaro's campaign and his supporters a lot of unexpected momentum. And it shows what a lot of us did expect were this election to go to a runoff, which is that that runoff will really test Brazil's institutions, especially if Lula ends up winning by a narrow margin and Bolsonaro refuses to accept the result. So for more than a year, the president has been sowing doubt about Brazil's electronic voting system, insinuating that basically anything other than his own victory is a sign of fraud. He refrained from any kind of fraud talk last night in his speech, but it's likely that that would come back if he loses in October. The other thing that these results tell us is that if Lula does manage to win in the end, governing's going to be a lot harder for him because Congress is a lot more bolsonarista or kind of conservative and ideological than people were expecting. And how do you think this surprise result is going to go down with uh, supporters of, of either candidate? I was out with Lula's supporters at a march the day before the election, and they were pretty excited. No doubt some of these supporters are feeling kind of disappointed now. And as a sign of just how polarized Brazil is, I also talked to a lot of Bolsonaro supporters who were convinced that despite the polls, Bolsonaro was the one who was going to win in the first round. One of them told me Lula has no chance at all. He was so certain that Bolsonaro would win in the first round that he bet three cases of beer with a Lula supporter. He, like many Bolsonaro supporters, thinks that it would be proof of manipulation in the voting system if Lula does manage to win in the end. And he plans to protest. One of his friends said that he would even ask for the army to intervene to prevent Lula from taking office. He believes in some of the fake news, like that Lula would close churches or implement communism in Brazil. But given the amount of surprise here in the first round, could there be a further surprise in the second? Could Bolsonaro, in fact, win this in the end? Yes, absolutely. Lula is still the favorite, but Bolsonaro could come back. 
The economy has been slowly improving. Inflation is coming down. His government has spent billions of reais on cash transfers and subsidies to poor Brazilians. And more than anything else, yesterday's results show that while many voters do retain fond memories of Lula's time in office between 2003 and 2010, when his government channeled the fruits of a commodity boom into social programs, for other voters, the memory of Lula is the big corruption scandal, Lava Jato, that his party, the Workers' Party, presided over and the recession that followed it. And that a lot of people are voting against Lula. And that is still a really strong sentiment in Brazil. So it feels like things are much more on a knife edge than anyone expected. What, what do you expect for the remaining campaigning then before the second round? So people are worried about what will happen on October 30th, but that still feels a long way away. This has been a very tense and violent campaign, and it's probably going to remain so. Three Lula supporters have been killed by Bolsonaro supporters in a recent poll. Nearly 70% of Brazilians said they feared being physically attacked because of their political opinions. And this has been fueled by Bolsonaro's discourse that his opponent is not just wrong, but evil, that the system is rigged. And I think a lot of us are really on edge about what's going to happen as this race becomes even tighter than it is now. And you said there's a very real chance that Brazil's institutions could be tested with the results. Do you think those institutions are up to the test? Well, they haven't yet had to show their strength because the kind of suspense about what would happen should Lula win and Bolsonaro reject the result was postponed. So if that does indeed happen, Bolsonaro is very likely to claim that there was fraud in the voting system. He's very likely to foment kind of chaos on social media and protests are likely to happen. We're not quite sure what form they will take. And then we will be looking at the police, at the army to see what their reaction is. So, yes, I think that Brazilian institutions are absolutely going to face a stress test on October 30th and in the aftermath of this unexpectedly tight election. Sarah, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jason. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Xi Jinping is the most powerful man in the world and a big mystery. I'm Sulin Wong, host of The Prince, a new podcast from The Economist. It's the real story of China's leader, his traumatic childhood, his rise through a brutal regime, and the lessons he learned. Now, he wants to reshape the world. To understand what's next, you need to know where he came from. Listen to The Prince from The Economist, wherever you get your podcasts. Often, where you see poverty, you also see violence and war. Not so in Malawi, in Africa's southeast. It's the world's poorest, peaceful country, but its democracy wasn't easily won. In 2019, when the incumbent president Peter Mutarika tried to rig his re-election, the nation rose up. 
a violent crackdown met them. But by 2020, a fresh round of polling produced a new leader intent on cutting corruption. Malawi's defense of its democracy was widely hailed as a victory for the rule of law in a region plagued by autocrats. But remaking Malawi has proved harder than just ousting a belligerent leader. Malawi's election in 2020 was won by Lazarus Chakwera. Jonathan Rosenthal is our Africa editor. Now He is a theologian and a reformist, and he won on a platform promising to end corruption and to boost economic growth. But sadly, the first two years of President Chakwera's term have not gone as well as he'd liked. So what's gone wrong with his program of reforms? President Chakwera initially said that he would focus on three main priorities, and these were to provide jobs, to create wealth, and to improve food security. But when I saw him recently, he said to me that none of these goals have been achieved yet. And the reason is that he blames a consortium of crises. These started with the COVID-19 pandemic, but then Malawi was unlucky in other ways. Anna came along, and this was a tropical storm, one of an increasing number that are hitting the country because of a warming climate. It washed away crops, and it destroyed hydropower stations that accounted for almost a third of Malawi's entire electricity output. And then the third blow came earlier this year with the war in Ukraine. That's driven up the price of fertilizer. It's driven up the price of fuel. Both of these need to be imported into Malawi, and that's led to a huge currency crisis, a foreign exchange shortage, and fuel shortages. They're massive queues with lorries standing, in some cases that I saw, for three days before they could fill up. But these are only the urgent issues that are facing Malawi. It's also got some really deep, longer-term structural challenges. And what are those? So to start off with, if you ask development economists about what countries are least likely to succeed, they'll rattle off a list of criteria. You know, countries that are small, countries that are landlocked, countries that are resource poor. And if you look at Malawi, you pretty much tick off most of them. It's a really tiny country. It's still deeply, deeply underdeveloped. It's the poorest country in the world by per capita income that is in a state of peace. And one of the reasons for this is that roughly 80% of Malawi's 20 million people still try to earn a living by eating what they can grow on tiny plots of land. The problem with this is that Malawi's population is growing very rapidly. These farmers are not very productive. The rains are becoming more erratic. There are more frequent floods, more frequent droughts. The amount of maize that you can grow in a hectare has really not kept pace with population growth. Those yields have stagnated. And these small-scale farmers just are not very good at adopting new technologies. They don't have the capital, and they're just not very productive. So to find out more about what the solutions could be, I went and looked at a medium-sized commercial farm to see if they could reverse this trend. The person who showed me around her farm in Malawi Central District was its owner, Pilirani Kosa, who's quite a remarkable and inspiring woman. There's plum somewhere, there's guava, that's lemons, this is avocado, and she was telling me about some of her successes. And one of them is that she's been able to graft productive fruit tree tops onto the kind of hardy roots of the plants that have been growing in Malawi for years. And this new breed gets the best of both worlds, productive fruit trees with the hardiness and ability to survive in Malawi's climate. I think for the past years, maybe two or three years, it was indeed profitable, but... 
right now, most of the challenges that we're facing is maybe instability of our Malawi culture, the currency, even issues to do with uh, electricity. Yeah. Uh, but she's also faced some real challenges in getting this far. Probably the hardest was just trying to get the finance. Some of it was about getting land, but it's been a real uphill struggle for her. I've seen mega farms in USA, I've seen mega farms in South Africa. So I've combined all that knowledge and invested in my farm. Yeah. That is why. Pilarani's been successful partly because she's so educated. She has a master's degree, she's traveled abroad to see how farms work elsewhere. But unfortunately, she is the exception. Most of the country is still fairly low tech. But there are a lot of poor countries, landlocked countries, countries with demographic transitions going on. Why is it that Malawi seems to struggle so much with its lot? So I think even if one looks at Malawi against all of its comparators, it's done particularly poorly. And a lot of that is down to many years of dictatorship under uh, Hastings Banda, who was the independence leader and then stayed from 1964 until 1994. He liked to control everything in the country, the length that men could grow their hair, the length of skirts that women could wear, and that included agriculture. He wanted to tell people exactly what they could and couldn't grow, how much these things should be sold for, and he set up this huge mechanism of state control that really tried to direct development. Now, that came to an end when he was kicked out and Malawi adopted multi-party democracy in the 1990s. But that sort of dead hand of dictatorship has still stayed. So you've seen successive governments following very similar kinds of policies. You've also seen, unfortunately, a kind of small, rapacious, in many ways, corrupt elite has taken control of large parts of the economy. And that really holds things back. What kind of policies are we talking about here? There are two main strands to this. And the first is that the government just has a kind of natural instinct to meddle. It tries to tell farmers what they can and they can't grow. It just bans exports without any warning. So farmers who've invested and planted can't get access to markets. And it is also driven by this idea that it has to be utterly self-sufficient in food as a country all the way down to the household level. So it spends vast sums of money importing fertilizer, giving it to farmers who can't use it properly or don't need it. And that is completely wasted. Part of the reason is also where ideology overlaps with self-interest, that there is clearly a lot of money to be made from these contracts to, for instance, import fertilizer or by people who are trading grain and know if imports or exports are going to be banned from day to day. So there is clearly some self-interest as well. But Mr. Chakwera came to power on a promise to wipe out the kind of corruption that you're hinting at here. Is he not doing that? What he has made great progress on is that he has been going after the kind of big corruption, people in government who have been taking kickbacks, that sort of thing. So President Chakwera certainly gets good marks for trying to tackle some of the big corruption issues that he's facing. The problem is that some of these are particularly deep. I've heard from judges and civil society activists that it permeates all the way through the top echelons of society, including allegedly corrupt judges. So very difficult to get rid of that big corruption. It's perhaps even more difficult to get rid of the sort of vested interests where these overlap with the ideology, trying to unpick those statist policies that rely on importing fertilizer or telling people what they can and can't grow, because that is perhaps less nakedly corrupt, but still very bound up invested interests and holding the country back. And cleaning Malawi up could take years. Unfortunately, with 
huge fuel queues, with rising hunger, power blackouts, and a really stagnant economy, Malawi doesn't have lots and lots of time. Jonathan, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Ukraine's rapid offensive last month in Kharkiv, in the country's northeast, brought many prizes. Swathes of territory have been won back, and those gains continue. In that initial pushback, Ukraine's army captured around a brigade's worth of military equipment from fleeing Russians. And in that trove was a single T-90M tank. It's one of nearly 400 Russian tanks seized since the war began. But this one, this one is special. The T-90M, also known as the Proriv or Breakthrough, is Russia's most advanced tank, the absolute latest thing that they have in the field. David Hambling writes about technology and defense for The Economist. Tank names give an indication of the year that they were brought in. So the vast majority of Russia's thousands of tanks are T-72s from the 70s, T-80s from the 80s, and there's a small number of T-90s from the 90s. But the latest version of that is the T-90M, which was only introduced in 2020, which is a massively upgraded version of the T-90. So this is very much the state of the art in Russian armor. And what is it that makes it so special, besides being new? The upgrade included a whole bunch of new Russian technology. So the outermost layer of this is a stealth cake called Makidka, which is this very advanced material which the Russians claim absorbs both heat and radar signals. So the idea is that that cloaks it and makes it very difficult to see on radar, and it makes it a lot harder for heat-seeking missiles like the Javelin missiles, which the US supplied Ukraine with, from targeting it. And then beyond that, if you can find it, then any incoming projectile is likely to get intercepted because it has this defensive system called Afghanit, which detects incoming projectiles and launches a grenade at them, which is capable of destroying anti-tank missiles at close range. It's a similar concept to the trophy system, which the Israelis have been using for some years, but the Russians claim that their version is even more advanced than that and can take out not just missiles and rockets, but also high-speed rounds from tanks. So there is a lot of hype around exactly how well defended this tank is. If you can even find it, it sounds virtually impossible to attack this thing. Well, and even if you manage to get past the outer layers of defense, it's then got explosive reactive armor. This is something you see on a lot of Russian vehicles. You see all these square bricks on the outside. These are designed to explode if they're hit by anything, disrupting it, and they're very effective at blocking anti-tank missiles in particular. And even if an attack gets through that, there's then the tank's armor itself. Now, tank armor of all nations is a very closely kept secret. The British still won't say what's in their problem tank armor. American Abrams tanks have this super secret depleted uranium armor. So obviously people are very keen to know exactly what the T-90M's protection consists of. Having said that, it's not actually invulnerable. There was one case of a a T-90M which was knocked out back in May, um, so clearly it can be destroyed. But actually capturing one and getting a look inside is much more useful than destroying it. Inside and outside from the way you tell it. Absolutely. They will entirely take it to pieces and look at all the detail in there. Because it's not just the defences, there's also the gun. 
the T90M has a very advanced 125mm gun and a new computerised fire control system, which Western agencies will be very interested to see how it compares to theirs and how well it works. This whole trove of information will help not just in defeating Russian tanks during this invasion, but also in any future wars in which Russian vehicles are likely to be involved. So it really will have ripples spreading out into the future. And this isn't the only example of useful intelligence that's come out of the Ukraine war. They've captured all kinds of Russian vehicles with radars, communications, intelligence gathering and other systems that have really been an enormous bonanza for the West. David, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. GEP AI-powered digital transformation. GEP is the global leader in AI-powered procurement and supply chain transformation, helping companies achieve impressive new levels of resilience, sustainability, and competitiveness with strategy-managed services and AI-powered low-code software platform, GEP Quantum. Hundreds of market-leading companies worldwide count on GEP to transform their procurement and supply chain operations and achieve amazing results. GEP.com That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. Drop us a line at podcasts at economist.com or leave us a rating wherever you listen. We'll see you back here tomorrow.